Paul is going to address that today in our text in Romans 7. This is actually a bit of a longer text. It's actually historically a pretty difficult text, a little confusing, but we're going to make sense of it, uh, we hope, today by God's help. So starting in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. The law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law was holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what's good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve God, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, let's pray together. Great Heavenly Father, we pray this evening that you would sharpen our minds. We're tired. Our minds have been blitzed this week by exams and papers, lack of sleep. And we have before us a very difficult text. Lord, we, we know, I know, and some of us know, and are ready to admit that we can't even begin to understand this, much less love the truth here unless you work. So be gracious, Lord, to show us what this text means, show us how it applies to us, and show us your goodness, Lord Jesus. I ask these things in your name. Amen. 
in Terrence Malick's 2011 epic, beautiful, poignant, painful, metaphysically confusing film, Tree of Life. Some of you are smiling because you've seen it. Uh, we encounter, uh, it really is a beautiful movie, I'd, I'd encourage it. If you want to see it, let me know, I'll watch it with you. Uh, we encounter a family, and uh, this family is remarkable in lots of ways. It has two remarkable characters in the parents. Uh, the father, played by Brad Pitt, is this fierce, uh, lawful, um, righteous dad who just sort of thinks that if he does everything right, he'll get what he deserves. The mother, on the other hand, is this gracious, sweet, kind, loving, almost spirit that just sort of floats through the movie. And, uh, and you have these three boys that are growing up in the midst of this house. The oldest brother's name is Jack, and we see Jack grow up. We see his birth, and we see him grow through his young adult years, his young childhood years, young teen years into an adult. And actually, the movie is given by him in his voice in and, and later life. And he's reflecting at one point on his younger brother, R.L., and he says of him, uh, I see my brother true and kind. He's thinking back to when they were like 8 and 13 years old. And the reality is his younger brother, R.L., is true and kind. He's sweet. He's beautiful. He's artistic. He's trusting. And uh, pretty quickly in the movie, as these brothers grow older, you, you see this trust being tested. Uh, the older brother is often is the case. I was an older brother. I did this kind of thing. Uh, at, at one point, holds out a lamp, lacking a, a light bulb. Holds out to his brother and encourages him to stick a, a coat hanger in it, a metal coat hanger. And uh, hesitantly, his brother does. Nothing happens. The younger brother smiles and says, I trust you. A bit later, the, the brothers are out in the woods playing with a BB gun, doing what uh, boys do, shooting things. And, uh, and Jack, at age 13, is, is angry, he's destructive, he's rebellious. And he turns to his younger brother and he holds up the BB gun and says, put your finger over it there. Put your finger over top of the hole. And then he pulls the trigger. And it's a BB gun. It's this tiny little gun. And what you hear, actually, is something like a cannon as it resounds throughout the valley, if you listen to it. And actually, in some ways, it's resounding throughout their hearts. You know, something, something terrible has happened. Something uh, that can't be undone has occurred. And we see R.L. running away, crying. And, and Jack wandering, sort of stupefied. And eventually, uh, Jack begins to look for his brother. And as he does so, we, we hear in the voiceover, in this pained whisper, we hear him say, this is pretty awesome and painful, what I want to do, I can't do. I do what I hate. It's an amazing confession from a 13-year-old boy. It's, it's really powerful. I'm a real sucker for this movie. Uh, I'm done with that. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, what young Jack says at 13, I think, is what many people admit if they're true with their own hearts. And it's what Paul says right here in the middle of this text in verse 15. Paul says in verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Hey, the history of moral thought in the world, among those that are honest, is this. You go and look at the great philosophers... And they pretty much agree what a virtuous life looks like. And they all, if they're honest, admit, I don't do the things I'm supposed to do. And it's true for us, too. 
whether we're in a room tonight as people that aren't sure what we think about Christianity and we have this moral code and we fail to live up to it, or we're Christians and we know that we're supposed to love God and love neighbor and we fail to live up to it, we know the struggle is real. We know the struggle is real. And, and it comes with all these other questions. What's wrong with me? Can God love me like this? And if I'm a Christian, is this struggle normal? Is this the way it's supposed to be? How, how am I supposed to live? And as I've said in chapter 6, and I say again in chapter 7, what Paul is giving us here is a very real but partial portrait of the normal Christian life. If you take just one piece of it and separate it out and say, this is the normal Christian life, you'll end up all out of balance. Uh, sort of one-legged, if you will. Paul is going to describe the Christian life, and he does so starting in chapter 5, and sort of goes through the whole book. What we're getting right here is a very real aspect of the Christian life. It involves real struggle. It's just a part of it, though. But we're going to see that the Christian life inescapably involves a new struggle. Last week, Miley Cyrus helped us get started. Uh, Tonight, we've turned back the clock. And uh, we're going to see, as we go through this text, that we've been shot through the heart. And you're to blame. You give love a bad name. Yeah. Some of you who don't get it, I know why you don't get it. Anyway, uh, Bon Jovi, 1986, first number one song for them. Uh, we're going to see that uh, we've been shot through the heart. You're to blame. You give love a bad name. Uh, this is a, it was rated number 20, all-time rock hits, and uh, it's a breakup song. And what we have in some ways in chapter 7 here is a breakup text. It's a breakup text. There's confusion, there's pain, and there's a struggle to move on. So let's start with being shot through the heart. And, and Paul begins in, in verses 1 through 6 with this sort of strange metaphor. First, he tells the people he's talking to, hey, I'm talking to you people that know the law. In other words, I'm talking to faithful Jews who know all about Moses' law. Perhaps you're Jewish, perhaps now you believe the gospel, but you're familiar with Moses' law. You know it and you loved it. I'm talking to you. And, and Paul, what he's doing in this chapter is he's talking about the law and how we're supposed to relate to it. But he starts off with the theme of death. And what he says in verses 1 through 3 with this strange marriage metaphor is we're freed by death. Now, this might seem to you like a terrible way to talk about marriage. Like, hey, let's talk about marriage. Hey, when your wife dies, you're free. That's sort of what he's doing here. Um, but what he's saying is the way it works, and I've officiated weddings, I hear people say, and they better mean it, because I sure take it seriously, till death do us part. Morally obligated to one another till death. And when death comes, the living spouse is free. And whether you view it as freedom or painful separation, the reality is the same. You're released from the obligation. You're free to move on. As one of our fall, summer conference speakers said a couple years ago, I want my wife to bring a date to my funeral. She's free to move on. Um, death releases us from the law's obligations. And, and what we see also in these first few verses, this is sort of hinted at in verse 5, is this relationship that Paul has with the law, that the faithful Jew has with the law, is already headed for death. It's headed for death. This is a bad match. This is an unhealthy relationship. The combination we're going to see throughout this text is that mankind in its natural relationship with its sinful heart, its what I call prideful presumption and self-assurance and determination to serve itself, plus the law equals disaster. 
It's Paul's argument in this text. Your natural sinful self plus the law does not equal moral improvement, sanding off the edges, making yourself better. I mean, that's sort of the way we think. You're sort of a rough person. You give them some rules. Paul says, actually, that's a disaster waiting to happen. It's a bad marriage. This thing's heading for death. Verse 5. And he's going to explain later why this is so. But right now it seems shocking. And Paul's going to argue what we need is to be free from this relationship and you're freed by death. Verses 4 through 6, he tells us we're freed by our own death. That's sort of strange because if that's the case, most of us don't want to be free, right? Like, if my dying is what it takes to be free, I'm not sure I really want to die. How about you die instead? Like, if we're in a relationship and I want to be free, I'd much prefer you to die than me. That way I could actually enjoy my freedom. Do you see the logic, what I'm saying here? Um, if I'm dead, I can't really enjoy my freedom, right? Um, it's a surprise here. We're, we're hoping that perhaps in this relationship, which is described as a captivity uh, in verse 6, that we're captive, enslaved by the law, that you know, the law should die. Like, if I'm going to be free, that thing has to die. And Paul says, no, actually, it's you. In verse 4, we're the ones that die. We die to the law through the death of Jesus that we might belong to somebody else. The law doesn't go anywhere. Somehow, through the death of Jesus, and by virtue of our union with him, this is all going into chapters 5 and 6, What's true, of us, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. I've said that over and over the last few weeks. That when you place your faith in Jesus, his death becomes your death. His life becomes your life. The, the marriage, the contractual obligations you had to the law are annulled. You're set free. In God's eyes, you're now dead and you have a new spouse. You're set free from obligation to the law and you're free to serve Jesus. The way it worked before was, okay, get the law. Perform. Be perfect. That's what you have to do. Under Jesus, when you embrace him by faith, you're set free from that because Jesus fulfilled the law. He suffered the penalty, and you have a new life available to you. Now, you would think at this point, if this is true, that you've been set free from the law, and you have a new, a new love, a new lover. And it's marked by freedom, and it's great like verse 6 seems to be heading in that direction, that you would expect, like, the rest of the text to be all happy and joyful. It would be all about the new, wonderful life you have together and how great it is. And you don't get that at all in this chapter. Pretty much it's done. You get, like, a very small glimpse, like, new life, freedom in the Spirit, it's going to be wonderful. Now let's go back to all the... And that's because this... Well, there's a couple different reasons. That's because this is a really messy breakup. This is a really messy breakup. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll see a little bit why in a moment, but whenever you have a really bad breakup, and maybe you haven't experienced this, but I did numerous times, uh, you, there are all kinds of questions to, a- to answer, especially if the person's great, which was the, my case a number of times. Um, people would want to know, like, what, why, what happened? She's great. And you'd be like, yeah, she's great. She don't me. Um, <laughs> what happened to that nice girl? What, uh, what happened? What's wrong? There are going to be people that want to know. And Paul knows when he says, I've divorced from the law and I'm married to Jesus, that all kind of faithful people that are all about the law and loving the law are going to say, 
wait, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean you're moving on without the law? How can you possibly love God and love neighbor if you're not all about the law, Paul? And secondly, internally, not just externally, all the people asking you questions, but internally, there's a lot of stuff there. A lot of stuff for Paul. The next 18 or 19 verses is Paul showing you his insides about this relationship with the law and his ongoing struggle with this relationship. There's still a lot of getting over to be done. So the next question then is, who's to blame? Um, and, and Bon Jovi tells us you're to blame. Uh, but who's the you? Is the you the law? Or is the you Paul? Or us, the person who's living in a relationship with the law? And uh, I think what Paul's doing in verses 7 through 13, he, he's looking back. It's mostly in the past tense. He's looking back at his life before he trusted in Jesus. And he's saying about this relationship with the law, this is like the breakup. They're breaking up. And Paul's pulling out the cliche, but he means it. Law? It's not you, it's me. He's pretty much saying that. Saying to the law, really, it's not you, it's me. It would seem like the thing that's most at fault in this text would be the law. It's, after all, in verse 5, it's verse 6. It holds us captive. In verse 5, it arouses our sinful passions. Verse 9, when the commandment came, sin came alive. I mean, you just put those things together and it sounds like, okay, you meet someone nice, you go out, you have a couple good dates, and by like the third date, you're breaking into people's houses. Uh, I've never done this before. When we get together, I lose my mind and terrible things happen. I mean, this is what Paul's saying. Like, when we get together... My sinful passions are aroused. Like, when you came, I didn't want to do these things before. Sin came alive. We're not good for each other. <laughs> Paul's saying, we're not good for each other. Uh, but Paul speaks of the law 31 times in this text. 31. It's like 27, 26 verses. Um, the law or some synonym of the law. And not once does he say something negative about it directly. Not once does he speak negatively of the law. Uh, in verse 7, he'll ask the question, or he'll basically know that other people are asking this question. Paul, are you saying the law is sinful? Are you saying the law is bad? It's absolutely not. God forbid. Rather, he says in verse 7, the law is so good it showed me how it was bad. It was perfect. It was a mirror. It showed me a reflection of what was true of me. In verse 12, he says, the law is holy, it's holy, righteous, and good. That sounds like it's pretty good. Holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13, did the law, the good law, kill me? Absolutely not. God forbid. It didn't do that. All right, so at this point, you say, okay, Paul, I got it. It wasn't her. She's great. She's beautiful. She's perfect. She's not at fault. So, Paul, what happened? Why'd you walk away? Why didn't it work out? In the end of verse 13, halfway through, Paul says, it was sin. It was sin. Let me find verse 13 here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law bring death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what's good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And Paul's going to go on and say the problem wasn't the law. The problem's my own sinful heart, my own sinful nature that I've got from my forefathers, that all of us have by nature. It says in verse 5, while in the flesh my sinful passions were at work. Verse 8, 
the law gave me an opportunity, and sin seized that opportunity, and it produced in me all kinds of terrible things. And uh, there's a psychological term for this called contra-suggestibility. Take that in a little bit. Some of you are like, what in the world does that mean? All I have to say is, you know exactly what it is because you do it all the time. Uh, and if you want an example of it, come to my house and watch how I interact with my three-year-old. Uh, this is why, contra-suggestibility is why telling my three-year-old what to do and what not to do is sometimes counterproductive. I mean, if you've seen small children, you know this is the way this works. Abiel, don't do that. Don't touch that. And instead of her actually, I, I know in my own mind now as a parent that I probably just increased the likelihood of her touching it something like 50 to 60%. Seriously. Instead, what she's going to try to do now is she'll try to find a way to circumvent the law while still breaking it. She's going to try and touch it, but she'll touch it with like a pencil or maybe her foot. <laughs> you know, or she'll try to get her brother to touch it. <laughs> she'll do something. She is determined at this point because, because the law and the breaking of it now seems beautiful and awesome to do it. Contra-suggestibility. And some of you know the reality of this. Like, you came to college... And you found yourself doing things you thought you would never do, and you kept doing it. Why? Because you're not supposed to do it. I mean, there were other reasons for it as well. Social pressure. You didn't have any friends. Found out that getting drunk wasn't terrible after all. Or it was, but not as bad as you thought. But but part of it, a whole lot of it, and whatever this might be, partying with friends, uh, drinking too much, watching porn two hours a day, whatever the part of it, whatever it was, Part of it is the thrill of doing what you're not supposed to do. Contrasuggestibility. The mere fact the law says you can't do it attracts you like a magnet to it. And your sin says, I really want to break this thing. And you enjoy doing it. And then there's the day after shame. And the day after the day after shame. Well, um, what ends up happening in our culture today is we have this idea that's pretty common that the law itself must be oppressive, repressive, and therefore evil. The law sort of stamps down our natural passions and suppresses us as human beings, and we're supposed to be self-actualized, so we should ignore the law and do whatever we want. And the Bible basically, and basically most traditional religious systems throughout history would say it's a bunch of malarkey, that we all know deep down what's right and wrong. It doesn't do us any good sometimes knowing what's right and wrong. Uh, but the evil is not from the law. The evil is from our own hearts. And it doesn't take much of an opportunity for it to come out. Um, so what we have here in this relationship between the law, which is beautiful, and Paul's own sinful heart, which is not, is uh, a compatibility issue. You know, are, are they compatible? This relationship, are they compatible? And the answer is yes and no. They're not compatible for producing anything good. They're really compatible for producing something bad. They're wonderfully compatible, your natural sinful heart and the law for producing evil. It's, real, it's a really strange thing. It's really counterintuitive, but I think you know this experientially. Uh, another example, perhaps, and this one's a little bit gross. Um, this is helpful advice for you. If you ever go abroad, be prepared to catch perhaps some strange dermatological illnesses. Uh, anybody else had this studying abroad or going abroad? I went abroad like five times, come back with strange illnesses twice. Nothing terribly dangerous, but like mild stuff. But the last uh, time this happened, I was abroad for summer and came back with something like a dozen warts. 
never had warts in my life. Like, I'm the guy that showers twice a day. And, uh, you know, like, hands, knees, legs, just strange. So I went to a dermatologist for the first time in my life. And uh, he's like, well... Typical treatment. I'm like, I know the typical treatment. You can like burn me with acid, like cut it out with a knife. I like, got like 12 of them, and there's a virus, and it might come back, or I can wait forever and be able to go away. He's like, yeah. And it's just great. He's like, but, had my interest. Uh, this sounds crazy. You won't believe me. It's like, me and some friends have been working at a lab at the university down the street on this chemical, and it's not been tested on anyone or anything, really. <laughs> It has not been approved by the FDA, but if you want to try it, I'm like, sure, I'll try it. <laughs> Pretty stupid 23-year-old first-year grad student. And so he, gives, he comes back with a bottle, brown bottle, no label, <laughs> and his directions are very simple. No explanation either. And he basically said, uh, keep this lid on, take the lid off once a week, and I, I forgot the directions part of the story. But basically, it's like, uh, what you want to do is take a Q-tip, dip it in here, and put it on one or two warts once a week, lid back on. I was like, what's going to happen? He's like, well, the first week it'll itch, second week it'll itch more, third week it'll burn, fourth week it'll burn a lot, and eventually it'll go away. I was back in his office two or three weeks later because my body was inflamed. All my warts were like blazing red balls of fury, and I was... (laughs) I was breaking out, like, on my forehead, not with warts, but with this crazy rash. And uh, I walk in, and he walks in, looks at me, and says, uh, you put them on all the warts, didn't you? And I was like, uh, yeah. He's like, I said one or two. Uh, so this, this, is, I, this is one of those deals where knowing how it would work or what it did would have helped me. Uh, basically, this, what happens is this virus flies, like, way low under your immune system doesn't even know it's there, so it just survives for years and never gets treated. And this stuff basically jumps onto the virus and makes it worse and screams, I'm here, I'm here, come and get me. (laughs) And that's why I broke out everywhere. And in some ways, what Paul is saying is the law does that in your heart. The law latches on, or the sin in your heart latches onto the law and breaks it and produces, as he says, in fullness in some ways, sinfulness, manifest, breaking out everywhere in ways you would never imagine. Another way of putting it, and this is really quite strange, is that to a a heart that doesn't yet trust Jesus, that's trusting in the law, the law acts like a greenhouse. It's a place where you grow things really well and really quickly. The only problem is the things that are in the soil of your heart aren't necessarily good. You're just growing sinful, selfish things really fast. That law, although it can point you in the right direction, doesn't have the power to change your heart. So uh, why does this matter to you? How does this matter to you? A couple things. One, uh, this is valuable because this is how Paul came to know Jesus. The text says, hey, this commandment, don't covet, it showed me it was in my heart. It showed me I had a real problem. Some of you are there. You hear the commandment, don't covet, and you're like, what is covet? Okay, don't long for things you can't have. Oh, I do that all the time. Her smarts, her performance, his looks. Actually, most guys aren't like that. His truck, his uh, whatever the case might be. We, we long for other people's things. Or Jesus' commandment to love your neighbor. 
or Jesus' uh, instruction that to look at someone with lust is committing adultery with them in your heart. You're like, oh my gosh. You begin to see what your heart's like. Uh, the law is doing you a favor. It's showing you what's in your heart. And you can completely diffuse that thing by deciding, I don't like this law. I don't like that law. I'll do this instead. I'll do that instead. I'll take this seriously. I won't take that seriously. And you do not get to know yourself. You're deceiving yourself. The law is meant to show you yourself. And then once the law shows you yourself, you should be honest with yourself. Really be honest with yourself. I mean, if it shows you what's in there, if three out of four nights a week you spend two hours watching porn, you have a real porn problem. If, like I did in college, you skip 60% of your classes, you are an unfaithful student that does not take your work seriously. Not only are you a slacker, I was going to say you're a loser. Um, I was. You just don't take your call in life very seriously. Um, if you're getting drunk twice a week to escape life, there's something really wrong down here in your heart. It's not just your behavior. There's something in here that's wrong. And the law is meant to show you that. So this, this last point's quick. See, we've been shot through. See that we're to blame. Lastly, we give love a bad name. Um, now, it'd be easy to look at this text because, man, this text is hard. It's about a lot of ugly stuff. It's about sin and shame and guilt and confusion and conflict. And, and think that, uh, you know, the bad name is the fact that we struggle. We give love, loving God, loving neighbor, God's love for us, a bad name because Christians struggle, that we're not the people we're supposed to be. And, and that's certainly part of it. But that's not the worst thing. Uh, what happens in this text is Paul goes from talking about his past life as, a, as someone that didn't know Jesus. And in verse 16, sort of everything changes. In verse, if you look very carefully, I'm not telling you to do it, but if you look very carefully, the verb tense changes. And he'd been talking about the past before, what he was like before he came to know Jesus. And now everything's in the present tense. The word now actually shows up a couple times in verses 14 to 25. He's talking about his present condition as someone that knows Jesus. And you would think... Okay, Paul is saying, I now trust Jesus. Talking about now, you think, okay, past failure, bad relationship, learned lesson, new love with Jesus, everything is going to be great, right? Everything is going to be awesome. You have every expectation, everything is going to be great. And then for the next 12 verses, 14 through 25, the struggle goes on. I mean, can you read 14 through 25 and not see struggle? It's struggle, it's wrestling, it's painful. And I think the real bad name that we as, as Christians, if you're, room in the Christ, if you're in the room as someone that acknowledges yourself as a Christian, the, the real bad name would be Christians are people, and, and the world has a real sensitive BS-ometer. They smell your BS. They know the hypocrisy in your life. They know it better than you do. And when you act like you've got your stuff together and you don't, that gives love a bad name. It gives Christianity a terrible name. When, when the world knows you're every much the lecherous, lustful guy I am. You're every much the, the jealous, petty girl I am. You're every much, and we say, no, nah, man, I got Mac today. Everything's fine with me. We're giving love a bad name. Now, this text is not saying that Paul's as bad as he was. It's not saying he's as bad as he can be. And this text is not an excuse for you, if you're a Christian, to go on struggling with sin. Well, 
You do struggle with sin. It's not an excuse for you not to struggle with sin. It's not an excuse for you to give up. But what Paul is saying here in these verses is, hey, I'm a Christian now, and I'm still confused. Verse 15. He's saying this as a Christian. I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want. But I, don't, I do things that I don't want to do, things that I hate. Confusion remains. We still struggle with sin. It'd be really great for us to be able to admit that to one another and to the world. Hey, I know I'm supposed to love Jesus and be faithful. I'm not, and I do terrible things, and I wish I didn't. And Paul goes on and says, I continue to struggle. Verses 16 through 22 is all about that. Verse 16, I know what's good. 18, I want to do it. 22, I actually delight in God's law. But, verse 15, I don't do it. Verse 18, sometimes I lack the ability to do what I'm supposed to do. Verse 23, when I look at myself and what's going on in my heart, the best word for it is a war. I love God and love his ways. I still do what I don't want to do. still don't love God and neighbor like I should. It's confusing, but the struggle goes on. And and what Paul is doing here, and this is really hard for some of us, it's really easy for me because I'm a pessimist <laughs> and not very idealistic by nature. And I love that college students are idealistic because it's great because I'm not and there needs to be some balance in this universe. Um, but we really want Paul here to say, it's all great. It's going to be great from here on. The struggle's over. Go live your life free. It's wonderful. We're going to get something like that a little bit in chapter 8, a little bit different than you think. But here Paul is saying, Forget your ideal. This is real life. People, the struggle's on. The struggle is real. The dominion of sin. It used to be my master. We were married to one another. And the law told me what to do, and I suffered, and I couldn't get free from it. That's gone. I'm set free. But that thing never left the house. It lives upstairs, and it haunts me. It hasn't left. Jesus has moved in. He's my Lord. I love him. I just have an adulterous relationship with sin. And I keep cheating on Jesus all the time. That's what Paul is saying. Like the struggle goes on. And it's not over. So what do you do in this case? You know, if, you're, if you're here and you're not sure what Christianity is about, I want you to know what I'm giving you, you here and what Paul's giving you is a realistic portrayal of what the Christian life is like. If someone tells you, trust Jesus and all your problems will go away, tell them they're a liar. Or tell them to come here. And so we can talk, because it's just not true. They might not be malicious. They might just be ignorant. But, um, you know, if you're here as a Christian, and you're looking honestly at your heart, and, and what this 12 weeks of the semester has been like for you, and how you've done things that you never thought you would do, and you haven't done things that you thought you were going to do, and you're saying, what do I do with my heart? What do I do with this struggle? Well, you can deny it exists. You can go hiding you can act like you have it together. You can act like you're on the rapid road to perfection. You can pose. You can perform. You can fake it. Or you can actually do what Paul does right here. You can cry out. So what he does. In the midst of all this struggle, in the midst of looking at the conflicting desires of his heart, he just says, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Some people may see that cry and say, man, that's the despair of a man who's drowning. 
I don't think so. I think that's the cry of a man who's struggling and fighting and is asking God to help him. He's confident that Jesus will. He knows the answer. The answer in the midst of my struggle is Jesus. It's not that I'm not wretched. It's not that I don't have problems. It's, it's Paul being honest with himself. I do things I should not do. Things I should do, I don't do. I actually want to love God and serve God and love others well. And I know I should. And I know in some way God's given me the ability. And I don't do it all the time. Paul is just deeply disappointed in pain that he doesn't love Jesus like he should. This is not out of the ordinary. I mean, imagine being married, actually loving your spouse, and every single day failing to love them like you should and knowing it. You would say something like this. You'd say, terrible person that I am. I have this wonderful spouse that loves me so much, and I do love them. It's just that I never say anything nice to them or serve them ever because I'm a terrible person. That happens like every day. That's probably the story of some of your parents' marriages. And Paul's saying, that's my life. Wretched man that I am. I am confident, though, that Jesus loves me. Paul's being real. And what Paul is saying here, I think, is he's showing us how to be real. We can do what he does. We can say, verse 22, I love God's law. I love his ways because he loves me. Verse 15, and I hate what I do. I hate when I don't love him. I hate when I don't obey him. Verse 24, and I feel terrible about it. I feel terrible about it. I shouldn't do it. I'm sorry, Jesus. And you can long to be made right, to be forgiven, to be different, to be delivered. And then remind yourself, chapter 8, verse 1. This is important. That's why I included this. And Jesus, no condemnation. Jesus bore my guilt. I, I've sinned against him. I've forgotten him. I haven't loved him like I should. But he forgives me. The reality is, I was talking to a student about this earlier this week. Maybe it was last week. We're all struggling. Like everybody struggles. There may be moments in which like, you feel like you're walking on the clouds. But there are some days, and I've said this before, there are some days where I just feel like in my, and again, it's a minuscule knowledge of human nature and the way the world works. I feel like I could walk up to the bus stop and be like, yeah, I know, it's, it's terrible, isn't it? Like, just everybody <laughs> has got something broken, something wrong, some struggle. We're not who we're supposed to be. And the question is, are you going to be honest about it or not? Are we going to be broken and admit it to Jesus? Or are we going to go on trying to fix ourselves by the law? After, uh, after Jack hurt his brother R.L. and, and broke his trust, uh, he, he finally finds him. Finds him hiding in a field and uh, crying. And later the movie shows them playing in a house, an old abandoned house. And, and Jack's trying to make his brother better. He's trying to restore his brother's youthful, playful, boyish joy. And so he's actually like grabs his face and tries to make him smile. It's not working. And he tries that for a while. When it doesn't work, he actually bends over. It's like a 13-year-old boy. And kisses his brother his arm. Like something like a young mother would do for her child. To make it all better. And it doesn't work. It doesn't make anything better. So then he, he goes over and he finds a two-by-four, a board. And he hands it to his brother. And he says, you can hit me if you want. Powerful, isn't it? You can punish me. You can beat me up. I hurt you if it makes you feel better, and if it makes me feel better, actually. You can take it out on me. 
And his brother seems to think about it for a second. He even takes sort of a playful, half-hearted swing, but he doesn't do it. And then finally, at the last moment, Jack, the older brother, says, I'm sorry. You're my brother. And in the midst of Jack's grief and sadness, he sits there and he's still processing what he's done and how he hurt his brother. And it almost seems like he feels like he can't be forgiven. Uh, his little brother, R.L., reaches out and grabs him by the hand and puts an arm on his shoulder. and shows him that he loves him. You know, there's something wrong with all of us on the inside. The sinful nature that Paul wrestled with and still wrestles with, even as the person that penned this letter, it's still at work in us. We still struggle with it. And we can't make it go away by trying harder, by kissing it, or by punishing ourselves. Ignoring it, or doing whatever it says, and just giving into it, that's not going to make it go away either. But Jesus, God's own son, he knows about the struggle. He knows all about it. He sees it. And instead of running away from it, he actually enters into it. He enters into your mess. When you say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Wretched man that I am, I'm sorry. Jesus draws near. He forgives you. He loves you. He comforts you. He even encourages and strengthens you. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the text we have tonight is uh, it's tough.